it feels so good to have the mic back in my hand. Welcome back to Unwatchable, you guys. My name is Chloe Rodriguez. I am your host. Thank you so much for letting me take a couple of weeks off from the podcast. This has been a crazy, crazy time period, and I have just needed some time to readjust. For those of you who don't know, I'm a waitress, and my restaurant has been open and then closed and then open, and now we're closed again, and my schedule has just been unpredictable. So I needed a little bit of time to adjust before coming back and making some episodes for you guys. And also with just everything that had been happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests happening, uh, there was also a question of whether or not it was even appropriate for me to be recording things. Um, And I will still be linking in the description some petitions that you can sign, some Uh, links for different organizations and GoFundMe accounts that you can donate to to keep supporting the cause. It's far from over, but I did feel like I was back in a place where I could put out an episode for you guys this week, and that is what we're going to be doing today. I hope you missed the sound of my shrill, shrill voice. And I really hope you're excited for what we're going to be talking about today. Today is the third installment of my special series, When It Became Unwatchable. In this series, I like to go through an entire television show, go through the background of it, how it started, what was so great about it, and then pinpoint the moment that it had a tonal shift that caused it to start a decline in quality until we can finally pinpoint the exact moment where that show became unwatchable. This is a pattern that I see happen in so many great series. I've done one on The Office. I've done one on New Girl. I think those episodes turned out really, really well. I highly encourage you to go listen to them. But it's always sad when what was once such an amazing television show starts to decline and starts to become a shell of what it once was. And I think that definitely happened in the show that we are going to be talking about today. And I'm really sad about it because this is one of my favorite shows of all time. This is the CW telenovela dramedy series, Jane the Virgin. To give you some background on my personal experience with Jane the Virgin, I had been watching since episode one. I started watching very first episode when it first premiered on The CW, The Night Of, and I was immediately hooked. And I don't often do that with series. I usually tend to wait until they have more episodes out, but I was just so intrigued by the concept that I I had to tune in for its premiere night. And that pilot does not disappoint. In the spirit of the show, let's start at chapter one. Jane the Virgin premiered on October 13th, 2014. It was developed for a series by Jenny Snyder Ehrman, who served as the main producer and showrunner of all five seasons of Jane the Virgin. And the general synopsis of the show is that Jane is a 23-year-old devout Catholic woman who is saving herself for marriage. She then discovers that she has been accidentally artificially inseminated by her gynecologist, and her life is thrown for a loop. 
I think the pilot and the first season as a whole are a really good example of building a world around the premise of your show. There's so many different elements that come into play with this show. Not only is it a telenovela, but it's also subverting and satirizing the telenovela genre, as well as introducing elements of magical realism, romance. Uh, There's crime drama happening in the show. There's so many things that it could be really easy as an audience member to get lost, especially if you haven't really seen a show kind of like this before, but they do it in a way that I think makes it really easy to follow and really easy to get sucked into. I think a huge success of the show is the casting. Gina Rodriguez is amazing in the titular role of Jane. Uh, Regardless of what you think of her as a person, I think that she is a really great actress. She's so good, especially for a character who is as emotional as Jane. You can tell that she carries those same natural characteristics within her, and you can tell that she's really passionate about the show as a whole. I think when uh, Jenny Snyder Ehrman was casting, she wanted to really make sure that she was representing a community of Latinos and Latinas and just a culture that isn't often represented on the show. And I think that's a part of the reason why there's a lot of Spanish speakers on the show and there's a lot of characters speaking in Spanish throughout. Um, And that was very important to Gina Rodriguez. Gina Rodriguez is famously an advocate for the Latinx community. You would be hard pressed to find an interview with her where she doesn't mention the fact that she takes her role as a representative of the Latinx community very, very seriously. And she bases a lot of her roles around that. Uh, She famously, before her career really took off, turned down a lead role in the show Devious Maids because she was afraid of playing into the housekeeper type of stereotype that she has seen Latina women boxed into throughout the years. And that's why I think it's so important for her as the lead to be someone who speaks out about what it's like to represent this community and a reason that I think she was really well cast aside from just being an incredible actress. I think the chemistry between her and her romantic counterparts is really something that draws in the audience, especially younger viewers. You have Justin Baldoni as Rafael Solano. You have Brett Dyer as Michael Cordero. We will definitely be talking about Petra more throughout this because I think her character is crucially important as the show goes on. But Yael Grobglass has so many different types of roles throughout the series. Petra changes so much. You also have the inclusion of her identical twin sister as the show goes on. So she is really wearing a lot of hats and she performs this role just wonderfully. Um, Yvonne Cole is also amazing. Her character, Abuela, speaks Spanish for about 98% of her dialogue, um, which I think was a really incredible decision and something that I hadn't really seen before in any other shows. You have Andrea Navedo as Yamara, and of course, I could not skip over Jaime Camille's role as Rogelio de la Vega. Um, again, being very self-referential in this moment because Jaime Camille was such a prolific telenovela actor in Mexico. And 
a big part of Rogelio de la Vega's story arc is his desire to break out from his fame in the Hispanic community and really start to appeal to American audiences. And that's his goal as an actor, which kind of mirrors Jaime Camille in a way, which I think is amazing. That's just one example of the show really taking into account how it can pay homage to where it came from. Jane the Virgin was based off of a Venezuelan soap opera named Juana de Virgin, created by Perla Farias. And there are a lot of homages to this throughout the series. For example, it's often talked about how the Villanuevas are of Venezuelan descent. And there are a lot of references to Abuela growing up in Venezuela and what her journey to America was like. Rafael Solano's counterpart in the Venezuelan soap opera is named Mauricio de la Vega. As you'll notice, that last name was taken from that show and given to Rogelio de la Vega in the Americanized version. I would like to point out that this is somewhat of a loose adaptation. Uh, For example, in the Venezuelan version, Juana is artificially inseminated when she is only 16 and finishing high school, whereas in the American adaptation, Jane is 23 and finishing up her college education. In the Venezuelan version, the father of her baby is a wealthy owner of a prominent fashion magazine, whereas in the American version, Rafael Solano is the wealthy owner of the Marbella Hotel in Miami, Florida. Juana de Virgin is also more of a classic telenovela, whereas Jane the Virgin, as I've mentioned before, tends to be a little bit more on the satirical side. Something that I think Jane the Virgin does very well, especially in that first season, is acclimating the American audience to a telenovela-style show. For someone like me who was unfamiliar with the genre, I found it very easy to follow because there is simplified narration, there are captions along the screen that will give you reminders of certain events or certain characters, And those captions aren't just shoehorned in. They're very funny. They have a lot of personality. The narrator becomes progressively more of a character throughout the course of the story. So it doesn't feel like you're being spoon-fed information. It feels like you really enjoy those elements of the show. And they're enhancing your experience because otherwise this show could get very, very lofty very quickly. Um, That's something that happens very easily in a serialized style show. Because you need to remember what happened in the episodes that came previously, a lot of times it can get very overwhelming, and by the time you're in season four or five, you can't keep track of all the different plot lines. But because they've introduced those structural elements to the show, Jane the Virgin is a lot easier to follow, and therefore you don't feel as overwhelmed every time you receive information. And Jane the Virgin has a lot of big reveals, especially in that first season. So it's very important that you can follow what's happening. I really wish that I could go back and remember what it was like to view Jane the Virgin as a first-timer without knowing any of the big reveals that are going to follow because that's especially what makes this first season so wonderful to me. You get big reveals as you go along. You get the reveal of Rogelio de la Vega being Jane's father. You get the reveal of 
Rafael Solano's sister Luisa being the person who artificially inseminated Jane. You get an amazing reveal of Rose as Sin Rostro in the middle of season one. Spoiler alert, but I'm pretty sure you guys have already seen this show if you're listening to this podcast right now. I love, love, love the first season. It might be my favorite season of the show just because it is Jane the Virgin in its purest form. Now, I've talked a little bit about how this show is different in its genre style. It's different in its elements of magical realism. It has an amazing cast with a lot of diversity and representation of a culture that's not often seen as the lead character of a story. But another element that I really enjoy is that they talk about religion and morality a lot in this show. Jane being a devout Catholic and especially being guided by her grandmother, Abuela, throughout the series, that's something that really appealed to me as somebody who grew up in a religious household, going to church all the time. I think it's not necessarily cool to see those kind of characters on television. Usually, they're given a role as the quote-unquote religious type. Think of Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, where that's kind of the joke, is that they believe in God. But in Jane the Virgin, it's a celebrated core element of who she is and how she was raised. And this show explores how that is good and how that's affected her, and also what are some of the downfalls to that? How do you how do you keep up your morality and your position as a devout Catholic while also adjusting to modern times and adjusting to what you truly believe? What have you just been told and what do you truly believe when it comes to your own beliefs and your own religion? That's something that is wild to me to see explored on this show and something that I greatly appreciate, something that really resonated with me. I also think it's very popular nowadays to have your lead protagonist be more of an anti-hero, think something along the lines of Fleabag or Girls or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's very popular to have your lead characters be in the wrong or kind of be deplorably likable in a way, but I think what Jane the Virgin does is give you a lead character who always tries to be upfront and really does try to make the right decisions. Um, I think that Jane in the first season so appealed to me because, you know, she's still growing up and she's still trying to figure herself out, but she knows right from wrong and she chooses right from wrong. And morality and her spiritual values are so important to her that even though she's not perfect and she definitely makes some errors in judgment, She's overall really trying to be a good person. And to me, that's something that was really refreshing and something that really made me fall in love with the show. I just think that, especially in the first season, it was just so unique and radical in what it was doing. And even though there's so many dramatic elements of this mysterious drug lord and this panic of this unwanted pregnancy and, you know, a, a breakup of an engagement... I think it still has such an optimistic viewpoint in that first season, and so much so that by the time you get to the end of season one, you're rooting for these characters and this family so much, and you're so excited when Mateo is born, and so invested in the happiness between all of these characters. 
Now, moving into season two, this season offers some of my personal favorite moments of the entire series. I think this show also felt a little bit more comfortable in this season to really play into these dramatic telenovela-style twists, such as the introduction of Ineshka as Petra's long-lost identical twin sister, the supposed capture of Sinrostro and subsequent reveal of a case of stolen identity in the case of Michael's partner, Susan Barnett. We have that great reveal at the very, very end of the season that it was Rose the whole time, just in disguise. Very, they never really, (laughs) you really have to suspend your disbelief to think that they could actually wear a mask that's that believable, but hey, it's a big part of the show. I also think that this is the most romantic season of Jane the Virgin. You're starting off the season with her kind of torn between Raphael and Michael, and then you have that just unbelievably heartbreaking fight between Michael and Raphael when Matteo becomes injured and Jane ultimately decides that even though she wants to be with Michael, she feels the right thing to do is to choose to step away and consider a life outside of him for the good of her family. Um, I should disclose that I have been fully Team Michael throughout the entire series, so Season two definitely speaks to me because this is the season where they get back together and get engaged and get married. And I think the season two finale is so incredible at their wedding. And then just that like gut-wrenching twist where he ends up shot on the floor of the Marbella right before they're like actually about to have sex and she's going to lose her virginity for the first time. Oh my God. I think if season one really introduces you to all the elements of the show, season two is really where they bring them out full force now that they've kind of gotten the audience accustomed to exactly what they want to do with the tone of the show. But now I think it's important that we move on to season three, because season three is where I believe the moment occurs where this show has a huge tonal shift. Now, something that I've talked about before in my When It Became Unwatchable series is that I actually believe there are two points of decline in a television series. The first point of decline is when there is a tonal shift that causes the series to go downhill. It's not unwatchable yet, but it is becoming very different from the show that you once knew and loved. I believe that that happens in this season. However, I don't think during season three it hits the point of complete unwatchability. We'll get to that a little bit later. I have a lot to say about season three as a whole, and I think in particular season three is so interesting because it almost feels like two different seasons in one. Uh, In the 11th episode, there is a significant time jump. There is a three-year time jump in the 11th episode of season three that drastically changes the direction of the show. And I will get to that in a moment, but there is a lot of ground to cover in those first 10 episodes of season three. At the beginning of this season, we're left with a lot of cliffhangers. Michael and Jane have finally gotten married. However, he was shot on their wedding night and we weren't sure if he was dead or alive coming back from this hiatus. Ineshka assumed Petra's identity, and Petra is now basically experienced what they call locked-in syndrome, where she can hear and see what's happening, but she can't respond to any of it. She is petrified. Ha ha ha. 
Rogelio met Darcy, the celebrity matchmaker, and they are in cahoots to have a baby together. Xiomara is considering opening a dance school. Raphael discovers that he may not be a biological descendant of his father and is now on a journey to figure out more about his past and who he is and where he came from. So there's a lot of very significant questions being raised by every character on this show. And also, probably the most significant event to occur in Jane the Virgin thus far occurs in Season 3, Episode 3, in which Jane and Michael finally consummate their marriage, and Jane is no longer Jane the Virgin. Give her a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. She waited until her wedding day, and then some, as was the goal. Honestly, when I think of these first ten episodes of season three, in my head, I was thinking that the moment of decline happened very early on in season three. There are some story arcs that I really don't like. I hate the whole storyline where Jane's cousin visits from Venezuela and she's a party animal and we don't know if we can trust her and she never really comes back so I feel like her character was just kind of like boring and didn't add much. There's also a series of episodes where Michael is kind of trying to figure out what he wants to do in his career because after his injury he's not entirely sure if he should go back to police work, or at least Jane doesn't want him to. And if I'm being honest, a lot of the Michael and Jane storylines become a little mundane at this point and kind of just turn into like a boring married couple situation of like, oh, now we have to go find a house. Let's see if the house is in a good school district. And to be honest, that's a big complaint that I have about the later seasons of Jane the Virgin. It does make sense in her character type that she would be such a, like, on-top-of-things mom and career woman. But honestly, as Jane gets older, a lot of her storylines tend to get a little more boring. And we'll definitely touch on that throughout this recap. In a way, it makes me kind of glad that they did decide to do that time jump, because I think if they had kept the show where it was at, it would have just gotten very stale and very boring. It was already kind of starting to feel that way to me in those first 10 episodes, but then it becomes radically different, and that is when we introduce the three-year time jump. Now, the reason that this happened is because in season three, episode 10, they kill off Michael Cordero, one of the main characters throughout the entire series. Jane's husband just gets written off the show. I remember the night that this happened and social media was just blowing up. I had a feeling that it was going to happen because in the first season, there's this line from the narrator where he says that Michael would love Jane until his last breath. And, you know, why would they include that little detail if they weren't alluding to something? So I thought something might happen to him. But then after he recovered from his shooting, I thought, oh, they were just trying to throw us a red herring. I remember the night that they killed off Michael. It was completely out of the blue in the middle of the season. And I did not think that's where they were going to go at all. So this was jarring. And it was right before 
a hiatus for a few weeks. So we were kind of left hanging for a few weeks at that point, if I remember correctly. Guys, I was heartbroken. Genuinely heartbroken. I loved Michael and Jane together so much. My, (laughs) you know what? I'm just gonna say it. I was gonna save this till the end, but now I'm too hyped up and I gotta make a speech because you know I love to get hyped up on this podcast. The reason that I am Team Michael over Team Raphael is that I think Michael brought out a very goofy and fun side of Jane. She was always like really happy with him and silly. And with Raphael, things were always so serious and he was always so mad about things and so sensitive and there was always something that they had to deal with. And it really turned her into like someone who had to walk on eggshells around him in season one and later in the series when they get back together. I just don't think it's that great. I love the side of her personality that Michael brings out. And so I was genuinely heartbroken. That scene where Jane receives the call that Michael has died and she crumbles to the floor, like scream crying. I think that's one of Gina Rodriguez's best acting moments throughout the series. It's so good. Now, even though I said that in these first 10 episodes, when Michael and Jane are married, their storylines become a little bit dry, I still don't think that that is the point where the show starts to really dip in quality. I think instead that that moment comes in season three, episode 11, where we get that three-year time jump. Now, the reasoning behind this time jump is something that I do understand, Jenny Snyder Ehrman has said that she chose to create a three-year time jump after the episode where Michael dies because she feels that at that point, Jane would still be in pain, but she would be predominantly over the hardest moments of the grieving process. And they really didn't want the whole rest of the show to focus on her dealing with the grieving process. And since this is such a realistic show in some aspects of how day-to-day life works, they thought that, you know, they were kind of torn. If they picked up the episode after Michael dies and had her move on with her life, that would have seemed way too soon. So they kind of had to choose a number where they thought was a little bit close and a little bit far, but not too close and not too far away from those events, if that makes sense. Three years seemed like the perfect amount of time to skip ahead. Teo was still young, they wouldn't all look incredibly different, but enough time has passed and a lot of things can go down in the course of three years. And in the opening of that episode, I think the show itself acknowledges that they've hit a point where things will never be the same again. Right after the recap, we get an amazing cut to the black screen with Alba's narration over it, where she says it will always feel different. And she's talking to Jane about how her life will always feel different now that Michael's gone. But in a way, she's also telling us, the audience, hey, from now on, this show will always feel different. She's talking to Jane, who is in the throes of grief. And she's talking to her about how someday her life will get better. And she needs to learn to let the light in. And she opens up the curtains of her window, and she lets the light in. And we are transported three years into the future. 
There's a lot to unpack in this episode. Raphael went to jail and Petra took over the hotel, and she was so worried about taking care of their twins by herself, but she made it work, and the Marbella looks completely different, and Rogelio and Zoe hate each other, and she's living with her old boyfriend Brad, and Darcy and Rogelio are the stars of a reality television show, and Mateo's older now, and he has behavioral issues, and... Jane is working for a publisher and trying to get her book off the ground, and she's written a novel, a romance novel, about her time with Michael. So there's so much that we have to catch up on. And I'm torn, because if the show had stayed the way that it was, and Michael was still alive, and they had never done a time jump, I think it would have gotten really stagnant. But I also think with the time jump, it ended up getting a little bit convoluted, and there was a lot to catch up on, and there was a lot of stuff that I kind of wished that we had seen. I kind of wish that I had seen the development between Zoe and Brad in their relationship. I really would have loved to seen more of Rogelio and Darcy's reality show. It almost feels like you're watching a spin-off of Jane the Virgin. You're seeing the same characters, but so much time has passed and they're in such completely different places that there's no way it can ever be as charming and as pure as it once was before. There's just really no way to do it. I think the show knew that it was taking that risk, and I think that's kind of why they set the audience up for the fact that, hey, things will never be the same at this point. I also think this is where the narrator really kicks in into high gear, almost annoyingly so. If you watch episodes of the third season in comparison to the first season, you're like, holy shit, this guy has so many lines. This guy will not stop talking. He talks so much more as the show progresses and he establishes himself as a character. And I do want to say, Anthony Mendez gives a great performance as the narrator, and I think he has a lot of personality to it. But sometimes it's just, like, a little bit overwhelming, and I think they're playing into it a little too much. To me, that's why this episode signifies a point of decline in Jane the Virgin. I just think it's all over the place. I just think that things are too different, that it can never go back to the original feel that it had, and while I think that this is still a great season to watch, and I really do enjoy it, I think they take so many elements of the show that I really liked at first and just turn them up a little bit too much to the point that they become grating. I think all the drama between Zoe and Ro in this season is just a little bit too much. At this point, they should be way more mature than they are at this point. It's just a little bit tiring to see, like middle-aged, like, people nearing 50 getting so upset with one another all the time and bickering like school kids. I think Jane becomes a little bit too meddlesome. I think whereas in the first and second season, she seemed to be motivated mostly by what she felt was morally correct. In the later seasons, she just seems to become a little bit too into herself. 
I would like to point out that there is a controversial storyline in this season wherein Jane decides to have a fling with one of Rogelio's co-stars named Fabian, and I did see a lot of online criticism about this story arc and about how this was the moment where people thought Jane just became too different than who she used to be, and now she's sleeping around, and she's given up her values, and blah, 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 blah. And that's not at all uh, what I'm talking about. I actually really don't have a problem with that storyline at all. And in fact, I think it actually makes a lot of sense that someone who would have waited until marriage and did what they felt they were supposed to do and got married and then had sex, but then lost her husband... It makes sense to me why she might want to be a little bit more free and uninhibited with her dating this time around and just kind of figure out how her perspective has shifted in all of those years. So to me, that's not at all what my critique is with her. And I I really am not here to shame uh, a fictional character about her sex life. And uh, I just wanted to put that out there. That line does that storyline does not bother me. And I think season three actually ends up in a pretty decent place. I love the season three finale where Luisa and Raphael finally have their last confrontation where Raphael has been gaslighting Luisa this whole season and she finally figures out that he really doesn't trust her and there's just that moment where her heart kind of like hardens against him and she decides to kick him out of his own hotel. I love the episode where we find out why there was a falling out between Jane and Lena, and they finally reunite and bury the hatchet. I think that is such an amazing episode. I love Lena and Jane's friendship throughout the whole series. Um, And I really like the end of season three, where you get that mad dash for Jane to find the letter that Michael wrote her, and you get that beautiful wedding between Zoe and Roe. I think there are some really good moments at the end of season three that I really do love to rewatch. But I think we need to talk about season four because season four is where things really dip for me. The thing that really bothers me about season four is that you're starting off with this romance between Jane and Adam. And Adam is a character that feels very shoehorned in. Adam is another writer And apparently he has this huge backstory with Jane that we, for some reason, never heard before. And he's like her long lost love. And for like a few episodes, they kind of like force him down our throats until he eventually like breaks up with her. And it's honestly as if the show knows that we're going to hate this plot line because they kind of make jokes about it throughout where they're like, who's this guy? Like, what? Why is this guy here? And just because they're joking about it doesn't mean that that makes it somehow okay. It completely seems out of left field that there was no mention of him previously. Um, She was only 21 when she starts dating Michael. And apparently, like, this all happened when she was 19. And so it's not really, like, that far off from when she would have met Michael But then there's also like a part in season three where we find out that she was dating some other dude when she met Michael. So it just like the timeline is just weird and it just doesn't seem like Jane would be someone to try to run off and get married at 19 years old. She's a big planner and they make her seem like such a spontaneous like dumb teenager in this backstory. So that makes no sense. 
And then she, like, and Raphael hate each other, but then they decide to get together, and then they're gonna get married, and just... It really bothers me because Jane was, like, my favorite character on this show, and it seems like her plot lines just start to get really shaky throughout the rest of the series. I also think this is the season where Alba's character kind of takes a weird turn. Like, Abuela was always very devout and very, like, Catholic and very severe. And in this season, they have her, like, picking out vibrators and, like, learning how to masturbate and stuff, which seems very weird. Like, it seems like they kind of just wanted to send a message about how, like, grandmas like sex too but in my opinion that doesn't seem very realistic because usually by the time you're older you're a little more set in your ways and you're sure as hell not gonna have these kind of discussions with your granddaughter so that felt very weird she becomes like very hypersexual throughout the course of the series and like i said i'm not here to bash on a fictitious character's sex life while that doesn't bother me It only bothers, like, it just bothers me because it seems very out of character and almost like they had an agenda. And that's my big problem with season four as a whole. It seems like they kind of have an agenda that they want to push throughout. And the show has always dealt with some political issues. I mean, Abuela is undocumented, and that's something that's come up since season one. And I think they handle it very well throughout the series, and very much showed how this situation is like a very sympathetic one and how it affects a lot more people than you would expect and what some of the, you know, pros and cons are, I suppose, of the immigration issue. Um, But this just takes a turn to being preachy. I do love that there is a storyline where Abuela decides to get her citizenship. I think that's great. And I love that moment at the end. And it seems special to the character because this is kind of something that she's wanted and that has hindered her since the beginning. That doesn't seem out of character. I think it's worth noting that uh, this season is taking place during the Trump administration and that it started airing after Trump's election and politics were uh, even just a few years ago, if you can believe it, things were even more politicized then. And obviously because he's such a controversial political figure and has a lot to say about immigration and the Latin community and others as well. I mean, it does make sense that this show would want to touch on that, but they're not really doing it in the best way. They're kind of just having Jane spout off statistics and just arbitrarily just stating an opinion And while I think that's fine, I think writing is always better and much more clever if they're showing instead of just telling. So while I don't disagree with the opinions that Jane the Virgin was trying to express throughout the series, I do think that as it goes on, it becomes a lot more blatant and a lot more of just a push for saying what their political views are rather than incorporating it into the actual plot line. Like, for example, there's just... For no reason, they, like, mention something offhanded about, like, well, you know how things are in this political climate. And then they cut to Jane, like, reading an article about uh, the immigration raids that that have been happening. Um, 
And it just seems like very out of left field that they would just put like a news article in the middle of the show and have her like reading it and shaking her head. And it's not just immigration issues. There's also a storyline in this season where she runs into her old professor, Jonathan Chavez, who she had a previous relationship with, and she finds out that he is also now dating a student, and he dated her when she was a student. And even though in season two, it was written that he was a good character and a good guy, and everything that happened between them was consensual, now all of a sudden they're painting him to be like this kind of like creepy, like pervert professor. When they wrote that original plot line in season two, so it's almost as if they were trying to make amends for the shift in power dynamic. Like, it's just very weird. Because this came out during the Me Too movement, it's almost like they wanted to apologize for writing in that plot point two years previously when they should just be owning it and say, yeah, okay, either come out and say, oh, I'm sorry that we made that plot line, it was probably, like, insensitive, or we probably weren't thinking about it, come out and make a statement and apologize for it. Don't try to, like, retcon a previous character where everything was fine and dandy before. It just doesn't really make any sense. I don't like that they were backtracking and kind of trying to cover their own tracks. Like I said, Just because I agree with what a show might be stating or what their specific political views are expressing, that doesn't mean that I think that it was good writing or that it was something necessary to fit into the show. Now, before I move on to season five, I want to talk about who I believe is the saving grace of the later episodes of Jane the Virgin, and that is Petra Solano. I think Petra becomes a complete and total badass character as the show goes on. She starts off as this trophy wife and this very manipulative person who will do anything it takes to have money and power. And while she does keep those qualities going into the later seasons, she's also able to use them to become an incredible businesswoman. She runs the hotel better than Raphael did. She becomes a kick-ass mom. She figures out where she stands as a mother. You know, maybe she doesn't fit the traditional nurturing mother role like Jane, but her kids are really smart, and they are also kind of badasses, and she figures out how to provide for them. And she discovers herself sexually through her bisexual relationship with Jane Ramos, played by Rosario Dawson. Shout out, I love Rosario Dawson, and I think she does an incredible job I love the chemistry between Petra and JR throughout the series. Love them. I honestly think while Jane's plots become boring, Petra's plots become really, really cool. And I just love the way that they strip her out of her, like, femme fatale, like, using sex to get ahead kind of personality that she was before. And they really show her learning what her strengths are and how she can fit into this world of business outside of clinging to men and using their money and power. She starts to learn how to do that herself, and it's amazing. And she's total fucking badass, total fucking hottie. I think that Petra becomes the best character in the later seasons, and in a very believable way. I think her character development is believable in the sense that she has 
had a lot of things happen to her that have taught her and have helped her get to where she is now. I think Petra is a fantastic character. But now it's time for the moment, you guys. We've been waiting for it. We've been talking for 45 minutes about this show. And now it's time for us to get to the point where Jane the Virgin became unwatchable. Let me set the scene for you. Abuela has just received her citizenship. There's an enormous party going on at her home. She marries Jorge so that he can get his green card. Things are looking up for the whole family. Jane had a huge breakthrough in her book. She knows exactly what direction she wants to take her next novel in. Raphael is about to propose to her. She decides to surprise him at his apartment, and she is determined to be proposed to that night. She says, if he doesn't propose to me, I'm going to propose to him. Either way, like, we are coming out of this engaged tonight. She goes to his apartment. He's been acting a little strange the past few days, but, you know, she just assumes it's because of the proposal. She knocks on the door, and he tells her he doesn't want to talk to her. He's going through something. He doesn't want to see her. Classic Raphael move to push her away, right? But instead of leaving, she decides to stay. She says, no, no, we're breaking our patterns. I don't care what happened. I am coming in right now. She walks into his apartment and she sees from beyond the grave a man who she thought had been dead for nearly four years at this point. Standing in front of her, Detective Michael Cordero. That's how they end season four. And we're left on a summer-long hiatus, not knowing if that's really him. Is it someone in disguise? Was he ever even dead? There's so many questions. It was an incredible moment. So many people were shocked by this moment. Jane the Virgin continued its streak of just offering these jaw-dropping season finales. But unfortunately, I think that this moment signifies when Jane the Virgin became unwatchable. Because in this moment, they're erasing everything that we once knew. Everything that had been true for a full season and a half is gone in this one moment. I think there's a difference between a twist and a gotcha. A twist is a huge reveal where everything comes together and it all makes sense. In a gotcha moment, it almost feels like a like a middle finger to the audience for caring. Like from the writers saying, ha ha, gotcha! You thought Michael was dead, but he's alive, and now we're gonna piece together why. And the problem with these moments is that oftentimes the explanation doesn't really make that much sense. It almost feels like they wanted to have this huge moment. It's like they all gathered around and said, what would be the craziest thing to happen? Michael comes back from the dead. But then they don't really have a realistic or uh, satisfying explanation as to why that happened. They just wanted it to happen. And I think that's the case here. Now, there's a lot of different things that happen throughout Jane the Virgin. Obviously, with the whole Sin Rostro plotline and everything that happens with Zoe and Ro and Abuela and Petra, but I think it would be best for me to just focus on 
what I really think makes season five of Jane the Virgin completely unwatchable. Now, when I originally saw it air on television, I really hated it. And sometimes that happens where I really hate when it first airs, but then when I go back and rewatch it, it doesn't seem quite as bad as I thought it was. That was not the case for Jane the Virgin. When I rewatched season five, it was just as bad as I remembered, if not even worse. So with this whole reveal that Michael is alive, we discover that he has been living in Montana as a man named Jason. He was kidnapped by Sinrostro, had his memories wiped, didn't really know where to go from there, and instead lives as a rancher and has no recollection of the fact that he was married to Jane or really anything like that. Their whole relationship has now been erased from his memory. Now, I know that amnesia is a trope of the telenovela, and I guess it's kind of amazing that they hadn't used that trope thus far in the show. But to use it on a character who is so influential, especially in those early seasons, who's mentioned in all the subsequent seasons that he's not in, who still has such a presence, whether it be in flashbacks or in just recollections or character motivations throughout season four, like Michael is still a huge part of the show. And bringing him back and giving him amnesia and a completely different personality really leaves a sour taste in your mouth. Now, first off, Michael as Jason is kind of a jerk. And that doesn't really bother me because obviously he would be a different person. But it does make it a little bit frustrating to know that this is what you have to remember Michael by in the last season. I think the biggest problem with this plotline is the way that it affects Jane and Raphael's relationship. Raphael is still so insecure about the fact that Jane married Michael instead of him all those years ago that he is now angry at her for trying to help Jason slash Michael get his memories back. And he's so mad that he turns their son, Mateo, against her, tells him that Jane is responsible for breaking up their family, does nothing to defend her when her son is angry with her. And not only that, he breaks up with her because he claims that she is choosing Michael over him again. Which, in Jane's defense, how the fuck are you supposed to react when the person you're legally married to comes back from the grave? There's literally no way to know how to handle that. And I think, honestly, she handles it the best way that she can. You obviously have to explore your relationship with that person and what that means. You're legally married to them. They were someone that you were in love with and wished every day after they died that they would come back or that you could see them one last time. And now that you're getting that thing that you thought was completely impossible to ever have, of course you wouldn't know how to react. No one would know how to react. And the fact that Raphael is so judgmental about the fact that she wants to talk to Michael and still see him and figure out what the fuck is going on and takes it so personally really makes him seem completely immature, so unsupportive, and you know, I didn't really like them together before, but after that, I really don't like them together. Because Raphael, 
will just be angry at anything that displeases him. I think it ruins Raphael's character, I think it ruins Michael's character, and in a way, it ruins Jane's character. Because after she decides to make the decision to leave Michael behind and choose Raphael, she becomes so desperate for Raphael's attention that she's essentially stalking him. She becomes just so out of her mind, obsessed with getting him to like her, and becomes so over-the-top meddlesome that she also becomes unlikable. So you're ruining, like, the main three people in your cast. Yeah, I really do like the moment where all of Michael's memories come back. I kind of like the episode where we go to Montana and see what he's been up to. I think that's pretty interesting. But for the most part, he's there and then he's gone so quickly that it almost doesn't make sense for that to have happened at all. It almost seems as if the writers were so dead set on Raphael and Jane getting together that they needed to prove that even if Michael was around, she would still choose Raphael. So they decided to dig up his corpse and reanimate his body and just so that they could prove that she would choose Raphael over Michael this time. It makes absolutely no sense. It's completely unwatchable. It's jarring. It ruins the characters. It leaves such a bad taste in your mouth for the rest of season five. I just can't stand it. I think it's truly, truly a terrible decision. And without a doubt, the reason that Jane the Virgin became unwatchable. A lot of other things are tied up in season five. We see the return of Milos. We see Petra finally triumphing over her mother. We see her getting back together with Jane Ramos. Rogelio is hard at work uh, converting his old Passions of Santos series for the American audience. I do love that a lot of Rogelio's plot lines throughout the series are very self-referential as to the telenovela genre and the fact that Jane the Virgin in itself is a telenovela that was adapted to an American audience. I do think that's really great. But at this point, it's just lost so much of its sparkle. So many plot lines have just come and gone and not overall seem too significant. A lot of them I can't even remember, even though I just rewatched the series. I hate Raphael and Jane's relationship because of how he reacted to the Michael situation. I hate that we just leave Michael stranded in the middle of Montana, heartbroken when Jane decides to choose Raphael. I mean, the decision makes sense because a lot of time has passed, but still, like, that's just not the send-off that he deserved. I personally don't think they should have brought him back at all. And honestly, the finale to the series was not that satisfying to me. I feel like they pitched that there were going to be so many incredible reveals, and they were all things that I had already figured out. Like, there's a reveal that Mateo has been the narrator the whole time, and I feel like that was not that huge of a reveal. I kind of figured as much. I also don't really know why it matters who the narrator is. Um, there's also a big reveal that the show has been Jane's book, but I felt like that seemed obvious from the get-go, especially once she starts writing the book and you can hear like little excerpts from it or little snippets about what it's about. I didn't really think that was a huge mind-blowing reveal either. And it's really, really sad because I absolutely adore this show, especially seasons one, two, and three. 
I think that this was an incredible show with so many elements that I had never seen before. I think it's so imaginative. I think the characters and the cast were just exceptional. The writing was just so, so good. Every twist and turn, for the most part, felt like a huge reveal. But that last season, when they brought Michael back, I think it just really tore apart a lot of what was great about the show and really changed some characters for the worse. I think in a way it kind of soured me on some of the previous plot points. I mean, the, the whole point of season three and four when she's trying to get over Michael and go through all this, now it just kind of seems like none of that really mattered because he was there the whole time. The reveal that he was kidnapped by Sinrostro and had his memory erased because he was secretly doing police work behind Jane's back, like, that also doesn't make me remember early seasons Michael in the best light. It makes him seem like he was a liar and, like, kept things from his wife all the time. So I just think that season five kind of left too many things to be desired, and at that point, the series just became completely and totally unwatchable. If I rewatch this show, which I often rewatch the early episodes, I think I'll stick to seasons one, two, and three, maybe four, but I will never touch season five again. And I highly recommend that you guys give it a skip. Maybe if you really want to see how things end, just watch the series finale out of season five. But the rest of it is pretty bad. (laughs) Pretty irredeemable, in my opinion. I'm really sorry that I'm being so harsh on this show, but it's only because the beginning was so great that I don't understand how they could fall so far so fast. Just doesn't make any sense to me. But to leave it on a positive note, I think what is worth remembering about Jane the Virgin is that it really did try to be different. It really tried to represent a community that is so often overlooked It really tried to bring the telenovela genre to an American audience, and I think it really succeeded. This is a hugely popular show. I think if you ignore season five, at the end of the day, this is an incredibly well-written show, and I think it's definitely one worth re-watching. This really kick-started Gina Rodriguez's career. It put the CW on the map. It really kick-started Justin Baldoni's career. Like, so many talented people have come out of this show. I think it was wonderfully imaginative. I think it was incredible to see uh, Abuela and see a character who is speaking predominantly Spanish throughout the series. I think it was great to represent the Catholic community uh, and just people who grew up having a religious background like I did. I felt like that was really cool to see. There's so many things that I love about Jane the Virgin, and I do recommend that you watch the first three to four seasons and maybe, uh, maybe just pretend that the fifth one doesn't exist, because uh, I know I will. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unwatchable. Please let me know what you think down below in the comments. If you like what you're hearing, give me a five-star rating. Share the podcast. Tell people about it. That would really help me out a lot. And uh, go on our Instagram page, at Unwatchable with Chloe Rodriguez, and uh, follow us for some updates. Again, I will be linking some petitions and GoFundMes and donation links in the description to help support the Black Lives Matter movement. Please give it a go. Check those out. Sign those petitions. Donate that green because every little bit counts. 
and I will see you next time on Unwatchable.